Hi, I'm Scott Cooper, and welcome to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. In this episode, Chris Norris, the head coach of the College of William & Mary men's soccer program, and I welcome one of his former players, Will Smith. As you will hear, Will made the most of his opportunity as a student-athlete on the field, on campus, and abroad. Among many other highlights, he went on to co-found a residential youth soccer academy in Liberia called LEAD MFA. There's more to the story, obviously. Thank you for listening to hear the rest. Thank you to Will and Coach Norris for being great guests. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on social media as well. The links can be found at matchplayrecruit.com. Will was, uh, like most prospective student-athletes out there, he contacted us um, because he had done some research and thought that William & Mary might be a good fit for him. He had the... um, the good fortune of, of having an older brother who attended William and Mary and he had been to visit because of that. Um, you know, his brother had a good experience as a, as a student. And um, like for those reasons, Will thought that William and Mary might work for him. Um, it Will's Will was, uh, he's always been kind of, or at least from that age on was always a bit precocious. And so, you know, he came across as, as mature and, um, ready and, and, uh, impressive just as a a human being. And, um, that certainly helped sort of smooth the process for us and, and encourage us to get to know him a little bit better. You know, once we, once Will got his foot in the door and we knew who he was, we, we did our research, saw him play, um, both live and <clears throat> on video, um, you know, spent a lot of time talking to him. He visited campus and despite the fact that he is not your prototypical central defender, you know, he's a little bit undersized, um, a little under six feet. And these days, you know, if it, if a kid's not six, one or bigger, we're typically not considering them as a central defender. Um, but despite all that, there was enough there for us to think that, that Will would be a good fit for the program. I don't think we ever had any idea that he would be as impactful as he ultimately was. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes you get a little bit lucky and that's where intangibles come into play and can make make a huge difference for, for student athletes and for coaches. Um, but no, so I, can give, <laughs> uh, I can give my recollection. Chris, thank you for all those kind words and it's fun to think back on this. Like I haven't honestly thought about it in a long time. So um, my personal experience. So Chris mentioned, I mean, so I had my, the brother we're talking about is the name's actually Chris is a little confusing, but my brother um, had been at William and Mary and he'd gotten to know Chris. He'd also gotten to know Al Albert and I'd gone down there just as like a, he's seven years older than me. So I was like a 13, 14 year old kid and really enjoyed my time visiting him. And I always knew I wanted to go south. I grew up in Avon, Connecticut, just outside Hartford. And I'd lived kind of enough winters 
Um, and I was ready to, to get into a bit of the warmer weather. And um, so William and Mary was high at my list right from the beginning. And then I was really fortunate to have another brother, three older brothers, another brother who had gone through this process for ice hockey. So, um, and he'd gone through a very different sort of process where he was in Sports Illustrated when he was 13. He was very well known as a really high quality hockey player and everybody was calling him. And um, he was just a, an amazing mentor for me through this process. He was, he's four years older than me. And um, he encouraged me early on to make a list. And I, I get asked this question actually quite a bit, like by parents now today who, are, who have kids who are thinking about trying to play different sports in college, like what, what sort of process should they go through? And, and this was hugely helpful for me. And I tell everybody to do this, which is to build three different lists of 10 different of 10 schools for each list. One list being purely focused on academics. Where do you want to be from an academic perspective? One list purely focused on athletics, whatever sport it is that you're playing, where you want to be from a sport perspective. And then one list. And I think like people, at least when I was doing it, I was like, this isn't as important but I really think this is critical. One list from a social perspective, like what type of place do you want to be from a social perspective? And so I did that. And William Mary was in the top three of all three of those um, for me. So it was quickly one that I realized, okay, this is one that I should prioritize. I was really fortunate that my brother had known Chris and Al. And so I think he reached out to Al and said, Hey, you should pay attention to my younger brother. And, um, Norris, I'm not sure. I think it was like we had a showcase that I got to go to in North Carolina or in Florida with my club. And that was when you first saw me. And yeah, I was doing the outreach. That was what was different from my brother's experience was like I was trying to get seen. And as Chris said, I was small for my position, not particularly athletic, like not didn't have a bunch of speed and um, probably on paper wasn't an obvious candidate to play at like a top 25 division one level. Um, but I had a lot of self-belief. I felt like I could compete at that level. I wanted that challenge. Um, having seen my brother as a student athlete, I knew what I was getting myself into and he, he played hockey at Boston college. So the top that you could get in that, in that sport. And it really is like a job when you're playing at that level. And I'd seen that and I wanted that. I was, I knew that. And that's something that not everybody wants, right? There's some kids who are thinking about playing college soccer or any college sport. And then when they realize the rigor of it, maybe it's not right for them. And that's also okay. But I, I knew I was, I think like Chris said, I was kind of, maybe because I had three older brothers, I was like mature for my age and saw that this was something I wanted to do. And uh, yeah, so was doing outreach to a ton of different schools. It wasn't just William and Mary. William and Mary was right at the top of my list. Um, I was also looking at schools that I felt were not as difficult to get into academically, maybe not as quality from a soccer perspective. And then certain, certain ones that were perhaps at the same level, even better from a soccer perspective, reaching out to schools like Duke and UNC and Wake Forest that historically have, are perennial powerhouses in soccer, not getting answers from them. Um, Wake Forest in particular, I really, that was like the other one that I was really interested in, never got an answer. And then we beat them freshman year and that felt really good. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it ultimately came down to uh, Chris and, and the staff were offered me a, a small scholarship in the beginning. And um, 
I decided that was where I wanted to be. So that's kind of the process that we underwent. I also went for a visit that was really important. Chris came and picked me up from the airport in Richmond every time I fly out of there. I think of that that trip, Chris. Uh, and um, that was kind of the start of my William Mary journey. And my William Mary journey 100% was the start of my, my professional journey. Um, so when you say you talked about self-belief, like where do you think that came from? And, and um, like, did you realize it at the time or you're just looking back, you, you understand what it was then? I think, so when you're one of four boys and you're the youngest and everybody has a different talent that they're really good at, you have to find a way to keep up. And so when I was little, I was like trying to be seen and trying to keep up with my older brothers. And so then when I would, get onto the soccer field or onto the golf course because I also played golf at William Mary for two semesters get onto the tennis court whatever like with people my age I would have a confidence because I was like I can I've been competing with my older brother who's this like incredible athlete like I feel like I can compete at this level um so I think I that was it was sort of I was fortunate to grow up in a family where that it was built into me through that um but of course, at the same time, you all like all of us live with self doubt all the time, right? So I can, I can give an example. If I can move into when I was a player at William and Mary, um, freshman year, I didn't play for the first four games, and I'd since I was ten years old, I'd been the captain of my teams and a key player, and it was really, really challenging for me. And I reached out again to my brother, the hockey player. So this is like, again, having access to a mentor and somebody who's been there and experienced it was so key for me. And it was such a privilege. And I was experiencing a lot of self-doubt and just saying like, it's tough. There are 10 seniors. Um, there's, I think there were three center backs who kind of were probably above me on the, on the totem pole. And he said to me, and I think I've told you this story, Chris, said to me, you got to start treating every single practice like it's a game. And make it really difficult for them not to give you time. And so that's what I did. And, um, and there was a transition that happened really quickly where I think you gave me time in the fifth game. And then I started from the sixth game on through the rest of my career. And um, just that guidance from my brother and that nudge and that also belief from an external perspective, like somebody else telling me it's possible definitely helped bring that self-belief back and that courage to, to try. Um, as you're going through your career, did you have other moments of self-doubt, you know, even though you were, you know, starting and, and, you know, what, how did you maintain the level that you had to maintain mm -hmm. to, to hold on to that spot? Yeah. A couple things are popping in mind. There's also another moment that happens right in that period that I'm talking about, which is, <clears throat> So Chris gave me time in the fifth game. It was like maybe 10, 15 minutes. And then before the sixth game of the season, I could be getting maybe it was fifth game or I think I'm, I'm right about the timing. Um, I Chris pulled the whole group together. So I was, I remember I was a freshman on a team with 10 seniors and I still, I was the same as I am today where I'm very curious and I'm constantly asking questions. And in that setting, um, you're, you get a lot of flack from the older guys when you're constantly asking questions out at training um, around the group. Uh, but at the same time, what was my biggest strength as a player, I would argue, was my ability to communicate and help organize the group. Um, and 
which kind of translated into like a leadership function. But as a freshman on a team with 10 seniors, it was a little intimidating to speak up and, and play the way that I would normally play, which also then brought the best out of me physically. Like if I wasn't speaking on the field, I would be a little timid as a player too. And Chris brought the group together and said to the guys, um, this is before the sixth game, he said, Will's going to start at center back and he's going to help organize the group. And if anybody has a problem with that, they should come have a conversation with me. And it was before the the pregame training, before that game. And that just gave me this huge wave of confidence, you know? Um, I felt super empowered. And I didn't think about this in, in the moment. Like, I felt confident based on that. I was so nervous. But looking back on that, I think that was a huge empowering moment for me where once I got through the first game and performed well and we won the game and, you know, I just, like, the confidence would build from there. And I was like, no, I'm meant to do this because that's what the head coach wants from me. So that was really important. The other thing you asked about, like, so you're starting and you're, and you're trying to maintain that self-belief over time. I was always really ambitious as well. Like when I was, when I finished my freshman year, I was like, I want to play in the MLS. That, that was kind of my thinking. That was a goal then. Um, which maybe if you look at it at the moment, like could have almost been laughable. You know, I was just like barely maintaining my space, but our team was very good freshman year. We went to the sweet 16. Um, and I think we're as high as like number 12 in the country or something. But I was like barely in that team. To, to get to the MLS, you have to be a top player in one of those teams. So, um, but because that was my ambition, and again, because I had people close to me who were pursuing similar pursuits in their own career, in their own career paths, um, I feel like I was always pushing. Um, and then there were other guys around me, Roshan Patel. I don't know if he's been on here yet, but Roshan, one of my best friends and um, eventually co-captain we played four years together alongside each other we would push each other because we were living together um and and trying to achieve you know so i think always trying to achieve and then to answer your question on self-belief yeah sophomore junior years we weren't very good i think sophomore year we were about 500 junior year we were like five wins 12 losses and i was the captain junior year and we had that performance and it was you know that that lack of belief starts to creep in and you think am i capable of leading a team that's going to be high quality um but yeah i think chris and the coaching staff did a really good job of encouraging us letting us know that you know we had the capability within us and and then you know we did a good job also of of pushing each other to the point where senior year we were as high as number five in the country and we were probably one of the better teams that william mary's ever had but then faltered towards the end, but yeah. Norris, what do you remember about all this? Yeah, I mean, that's very much how I remember it. I mean, I, I remember specifically, you know, Will didn't, Will got into the team largely uh, for that one reason. We felt like we had a really, Good group. He's mentioned several times that it was senior laden. Um, we had we had graduated the the conference player of the year the year before, so we weren't thinking that we were necessarily going to be good enough to have the kind of year that we ultimately had. Um, but that group, I mean, you know, you talk about the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, and probably for me in in my time, um, that group. Uh, epitomizes 
that cliche better than any other group that I've had. I mean, we, we just had so many guys um, step into really important roles and have great years. I mean, you know, years that were uh, the best years of their career or just really impactful in terms of the role that they, they filled for that, for the team. And uh, you know, Will, Will had a really specific function in that group. We had, one of the other guys who who had one of those career years was Derek Buckley and was ultimately Will's partner at center back. And it was a tremendous partnership because Derek is incredibly athletic and he was the guy that, you know, hit people and headed the ball and ran people down. And then Will was next to him kind of pulling the strings and organizing. And, and you know, the two other guys that, that Will referred to were both seen that also played center back were both seniors. And we ultimately moved one to right back. That was probably his more natural position anyway, but he had had a great couple of years playing as another undersized center back for us, Mike Denuso. Um, and then Nick Orozco was the other one, and, and Nick was capable of playing in midfield. So we moved Nick deep into midfield. And, um, you know, it, sometimes you do things like that, it doesn't work. And in this case, it, it literally, everybody bought in and it, it came together incredibly well. Right. So, you know, Will went from this, you know, I guess, you know, not widely recruited, I guess is a, is fair to say, you know, player. And then, um, you know, he turned into a basically a four year starter. And well, he, I mean, he was the conference defender of the year, senior year. Right. Um, he captained the team to an NCAA tournament um, and then. As a freshman, he wasn't technically the captain, but he was the vocal organizer and, and leader, certainly in the back. Um, and that team won the conference. And like Will said, um, right to the Sweet 16. Yeah, I, I just wanted to get to like, you know, the mindset that you had, you know, delve into that a little more about, you know, you overcame, you know, through the words of your brother and, and Norris and, and, Roche and, and all these other guys that were help, you know, helping you along the way and how you, you know, grew as a person and your mindset changed and maybe not changed, but you know what I'm getting at there. Like, how did it evolve um, from being a senior in high school to, you know, being a key contributor really early on in your career and then, you know, just maintaining that? Yeah, I think. One of the things I think about a lot today in my current work is is leadership and like is leadership developed or is it do you have it from early on? And I think in my case, like I had a quality of leadership as a kid, like when I was 10 years old, I became the captain, like I said, and all the way through. Um, but I also think it's learned over time. And I think that freshman, I, I have, again, I haven't reflected on that that much, but I think it it's, as I'm thinking about it right now, that freshman year playing with that group of guys who, you know, from Chris's perspective, it was like the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. But from my perspective coming in, I remember the first training session, I was like, this is all happening so fast. Every single pass I'm playing is getting picked off. Um, the, the, the level was just so much higher than what I'd been used to. and. I had to then adapt to that and I had to learn from the people around me. So Chris mentioned Derek Buckley. Um, he, as soon as 
Chris gave me that opportunity to start alongside him, Derek started giving me little tips. So things like using your eyes when you have the ball, stop staring down where you're going to play the passes. And some of it was really simple. Others were a little more savvy, like goal kicks coming towards you. You've got a forward who's bigger than you. Give him a little nudge with your knee in the back of his leg. The ref's not going to see it, and you're going to then be in control of that situation. And those little bits and pieces, those are leadership happening in micro forms. But that's what helped me build as a player. Um, And then as I progressed over the course of the four years, I would say, especially once I got into junior year and was given the opportunity to get in the team and kind of that formal leadership role, it became, I kind of became obsessed with, I want to improve as a player. And the way that I can do that is also helping to improve the people around me and, um, and helping to empower the people around me. So on the one hand, and Roshan, and I talked about this a lot too, because senior year we were co-captains. He was the guy who was a little more, he was quieter on the field, not so vocal. I was very vocal on the field, helping to organize the group as we've talked about. Um, but he was really good at going to guys individually who were struggling and having a conversation with them and, and showing empathy and um, helping them through their challenge. And I was trying to learn from that too. And, and, and pulling from the experience of when I was a freshman and Derek was a senior and he was giving me those little bits and pieces. And Mike Denuso would do that as well. Alan Coger, a lot of the guys who were seniors that year in Atbaco. Um, and so I think like you build based on, yes, a mentality and a, and, um, a desire and a self-belief, but you need a lot of help along the way. And I was really fortunate to have that group when I was a freshman and then to continue learning from there from my peers. Um, and I would say that that's something I think it's a bit like cultural, like Chris did a good job of encouraging that within the team. Um, and it's something now that in my current work, like I'm constantly thinking about that with the people with whom I work, the partners we have, um, how do you constantly help other people get better and bring in people who are better than you so that you can empower them and you can grow as an individual as well. Right. Chris, do you have anything to add to that? Just kind of maybe your strategies of bringing that out in Will. Um, I mean, you, I'm sure you probably saw it, you know, but uh, how did you kind of pull that out of him to give him the confidence as, as, a, as a young guy with a group full of seniors? I mean, I, I think it was as simple as making the statement that will mention to the group that, Hey, this is what we're doing. And, you know, look, if you do that at that time, if we did that, if we stuck will in there um, and I mean, I was very clear that the reason that will was getting into the team is that we needed somebody to be vocal. We didn't really, all those guys for as good as they were as players were not particularly vocal in, in terms of organizing during the game. And I really felt, or the staff felt at the time that this group had such potential and that we really were just missing that one piece. We just needed a guy to be back there and kind of pull it together vocally and um, thought that Will could do it, even though he was a freshman, as long as people supported it. And that was really the, mm-hmm. the primary focus, you know, was just getting the other guys to be okay with that and, and recognize that, hey, man, you know, we're all here trying to win and pull in the same direction. And you just, I'm telling you that, that this freshman can help us get there. If you just listen to what he's saying and the guys, you know, they were great. They put their egos aside for anyone that, that had an ego and they, they just, 
realize that, hey, that we, we want to succeed. And, you know, whether it's this freshman who's going to be have this kind of role, which you typically find in, in older players or not, like we're OK with that. We're just going to we're just going to get on with it. And, and hopefully he's good enough to do do what, you know, the staff is asking. And, and ultimately it worked out that way. So. Yeah. Um, what other highlights you want to hit in your career that uh, before we move on to, to stuff after school? Mm-hmm. Norris, anything stick out to you? Well, I think there's a couple of interesting things um, that I, I, we haven't necessarily, you know, Will and I have talked a lot over the years, and I don't know that we've necessarily explored these two things that much. I know one of them we have sort of, but um, I, I think what is was really helpful in addition to like Will's family dynamic, the fact that he played golf and knew what it was like to sort of be on his own and have to like, you know, as a, an individual sport participant. And I remember this from when I wrestled, it's like, there's nowhere to turn, you know, you you don't, you can't rely on other people. You have to be on all the time or you're going to lose basically, you know? And, um, I think golf is is such a taxing sport or demanding sport mentally that that probably uh, really furthered Will's ability to lead in a team sport. Um, and look, not everybody's necessarily going to have that opportunity, but I do I do think that it in an age now where people specialize so much earlier, it it does sort of beg the question, like how much other experience is too much and, and how little is, is too little. You know, I think kids should try other things. They should, they should experience other, other sports and other dynamics, especially that kind of contrast where you're, you're going from an individual sport to a team sport. Um, I, I think that was really helpful and useful for Will. Can I, Chris, can I jump on that? Cause it's interesting that I've actually, I've never really thought about it from a mental perspective, but 100% it made me more resilient. I found playing in team sport environments so much easier. Like, like you said, golf is a really, really tough game mentally. And it's probably the reason I didn't succeed to the extent that I hoped in golf was that it was, I found it so difficult to be on my own, um, battling through the adversity that happens in just 18 holes. Um, and on the flip side, then when I would go into the team environment, it was like, man, I've got these other 10 guys around me who are there to support me and I'm there to support them. And it just, it felt like I was, um, you know, I wasn't carrying the entire load. And so that, I agree that probably made me more resilient as well in team, in like tough team sport environments. I still felt like I could get through that because I had that mental experience in other sports. The other thing I would say, what I've always thought about, this is like really simple um, physical attributes that come from playing other sports. But when I wanted to hit a cut on the golf course, like a left to right shot as a right-handed player, I had to swing in a certain way to make the ball spin and turn left to right. And when I would get on the field, like this was happening when I was in middle school, maybe, and I was learning that in golf and I wanted to start hitting like a back spinning long ball and in soccer, it was the exact same thing in my mind. And so it became really simple. If I wanted to um, if I was taking a free kick and I was trying to bend it over the wall, it was a similar process in my mind to trying to hit like a hook around a tree. And so th- that's the stuff that I've actually thought about a lot is like playing those different sports 
um, gave me tools in my mind about like, and like I could see what I was trying to achieve. Whereas if I was just learning that on the soccer field, it might've been, you know, more difficult, um, but I've never thought of it. So from a physical perspective, I've thought about that a lot. And I think it's really important that kids here, I agree with you, Chris, like that they're pursuing multiple sports and um, they're able to, to kind of cross train and learn uh, from one sport over to the other. And then certainly, yeah, that dynamic of team versus individual sport is a really interesting one that I think gave me more resilience. Yeah, I mean, the other the other thing that I was going to mention was, so Will's sophomore year, um, we had a great season his freshman year. Sophomore year, um, we were right, I think we were like, two, we ended up maybe a game over 500, something like that. But we played a really tough schedule and we had graduated those really influential seniors, 10 of them. Um, we brought in a good freshman class, but they were, they were young and it was a young group overall. So, you know, that year, probably the staff's expectations were a little bit lower. We feel like we did pretty well. Then we certainly hoped to build on that year and Will's junior year was not good. Um, there were a lot of things happening. Will, we, we've actually, we did one of these with Josh West a while back and he admitted to being being, uh, you know, not entirely focused at that point in his career. And I don't think he was alone in, in that group. Um, but in, in, in any event, Will, you know, I think Will's a guy who um, has so much self-belief that he, you know, much like me, um, felt like he would always be able to find the button to push. And neither he nor the staff or me specifically were able to, you know, we pushed a lot of buttons that year and we, we never found the right one, you know? And so that was a really disappointing year, but that may be, you know, one of Will's biggest growth periods, I'm guessing is, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to lead when seemingly nothing you do is working. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I also think like one of the takeaways I had from that season, now I'm thinking about it, was momentum was so critical, especially in this shortened college soccer season that we have. So you're playing every three or four days. And if you have like two moments in a row in two games where something negative happens and you end up maybe getting a draw on a loss, like three days later, you're on the field again. And that's with you mentally. And so one of the things that I personally tried to bring in senior year, I'd also had the experience of, I, I went to Liberia the summer before my senior year for the entire, um, the entire summer. And, and we can talk about like that started my, my professional journey. Um, but I think I'd gotten a lot of perspective as well from that trip. And, and um, up until then, I think like the college soccer season had been like so paramount in my, my mind. And it was like the end all be all. And coming into that senior season with one, that perspective of, okay, momentum is critical. And if we have a bad moment, we need to address it right off the bat because there's only three days until the next game. Um, and I'm not talking like immediately after the game, you got to let those emotions simmer. But the next day, having a conversation with the group and sometimes having to do that as a player and not having the coaches around is really important. Um but then also having the perspective that I'd had from going on the, doing that three month bit of work that I'd done in Liberia, I think like also shifted my mindset to this is an absolute privilege that we have to be in this position and, and let's do everything we can to soak it up and enjoy it and, and um, achieve. So 
going into that senior year, I think I had like a bit of a shifted mindset personally as well, which probably helped in my leadership style and brought out like positivity and encouragement and empowerment for the guys around me. Yeah. Um, let's pick on Josh West a minute. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he told the story, so no, but in in all seriousness, like you, he mentioned you in Roshan, you know, you kind of like took them under your guys' wings and, you know, brought them along. And, you know, what was your thought process there as a leader? Um, you knew that he had some talent probably and, and that you needed him in a way. And so how were you, how did you, like an immature way, obviously you weren't immature at that point, but, yeah. you know, would be like, come on, dude, you know, I don't think you handled it in the, in the, um, you didn't deride him or anything like that. You just kind of, you nurtured him in a way. So, yeah. you know, what gave you the wherewithal to do that? And, and, you know, did you learn it from other guys? I think, yeah, I, I love that guy. I haven't talked to Josh in so long and I need to. Um, we knew that that whole class, the class below us was super talented. <laughs> uh, Chris has already, has already mentioned that. Um, so much talent around us. And um, eventually I think that talent shone through, especially that my senior year. Um, and in some cases it was right off the bat. Michael Tiemann became my center back partner right when he came in and we had this awesome partnership for three years. Um, I think one of the things that I learned over the course of probably that junior year in particular was that there no one form of leadership works for every single person that you need to personalize the experience in some way. You got to understand who you're talking to and what their background is and what they care about and what they're struggling with or um, why they're having success, whatever you know situation it might be in. So again, I think Roshan was really good at that. Uh, he really understands people quickly. And um, I was learning on the fly. And uh, and then you have the, di- like, weirdly, when you're in college, age matters, right? Because maybe it's just that hierarchy of freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, but having a conversation with a Josh West versus having a conversation with a Chris Perez, who was the year above me and then became my year was, was different because Chris was older than me. And so I had to navigate that conversation differently than the one with Josh. And I think, I don't know if I would characterize it as taking Josh under our wing, but um, we knew that he was hugely important for us as a, as a player. Like he could be our, he could be our best player. That I really believed that at the time, and and in many ways, at times he he showcased that, um, but probably just needed some encouragement. And he he wasn't somebody who needed to be kind of kicked up the butt. There are some people like I think I responded well to if if Chris if Norris never really yelled, but if he yelled at me, in a way, it fired me up, and I would respond well to that. And other people might cave in. And I think Chris also is really good at at figuring out who responds to what. Josh was not somebody who needed to be yelled at. If he got yelled at, he would cave in and, um, and maybe, you know, the voices in his head would start going and then it, it wasn't going to be um, the result that you ultimately are looking to achieve, which is getting the best out of the person. So I think we just had a couple of conversations with him about, you know, what, what he was struggling with, what he could, where he could improve and, um, and also like built up confidence, you know, people need to hear what their qualities are as well. Um, and I think these, again, like I think about this all the time because 
this we're talking right now in the context of a, a college soccer teammate, but this is the exact same thinking and process that you go through when you're talking about an employee or a colleague um, or a partner in life or a family member. You know, you got to understand that person, understand where they're coming from, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, how you can build up their strengths, put them in positions to leverage those, how you can address um, weaknesses by, by providing support around those. Uh, and I think like that, my time in college and, and being a leader on the soccer team helped me build those skills in a, in a way that was really important for me. And hopefully for most of the guys that I interacted with, it, it supported them as well. Yeah, I mean, do you look back in, in, in your profession now and say, you know, that was a lesson I learned playing sports? A hundred percent. Yeah. I actually often say that like 50% of what I feel I know today came from sports. And part of that, when I say I know, is like how to learn as well and how to mm-hmm. keep to maintain that mindset of curiosity and always trying to get better. Mm-hmm. I think that comes from having been an athlete. Well, um, so your athletic career kind of in college started to wind down a little bit. Um, unless you guys want to talk about more, you know, glory day stuff. <laughs> we got to mention the uh, being the number one team in the country twice in eight days that was a highlight senior yeah, year we we went uh what was it? it was creighton and then yeah we played creighton at the old dominion tournament and the week leading into that game they had beaten someone and or somebody had lost and so they moved into the number one spot and uh you can you you can talk about the soccer i was on the sidelines so. <laughs> <laughs> what was it we won three two in overtime wasn't it yeah, came from behind mm-hmm. to equalize and then um you know, got this is that was another like that year was uh very different. The team and the dynamic was very different from your freshman year. Um and one of the things about that team was that <clears throat> they're like we didn't play that many players. You know, it was it was a pretty set i mean probably the the most consistent thing between those two teams is that we were really healthy we didn't incur a lot of injuries and fortunately you know for a school like us that's got to be part of the equation if we're going to have a good season in most cases um but i remember the creighton game because at the end of it you know we had guys pop up and and i think alveston scored the goal to tie it to send it to overtime and then the game winner which was a great goal was ben coffee coming off the bench you know it it Early in the season, that Old Dominion tournament was hot and the games were demanding and we had to go, you know, I think a little bit deeper into the bench than we might have in a lot of other games that year. And, you know, Ben Coffey gets uh, an opportunity and plays a great ball across. And Jeff Bombell, who's a sophomore at that time and probably also, you know, a guy who's trying to break into the team, scores the, the game winner and not a guy who scored many goals in his career. So, um, that's my my favorite memory of that particular game was not just beat number one, but having a couple guys have some kind of career moments, you know, for those for those guys. Yeah, and I would also say, Chris, like, so going back to the the point of momentum, so you win that game, and then we went to number twenty four Elon and and won away three days later or four days later, and then three days later we were back in North Carolina to play UNC at UNC, and they were then the new number one. And I just remember getting there and like the whole group had this sense of belief. Like we were on this ride of momentum and 
we felt like we could achieve it. And we probably like, you know, looking back on it, we probably had no business winning that game. I don't know. We had like three or four shots and they had a whole lot. If I remember, I just remember being probably more exhausted than any ever game I've ever played because we were chasing the ball so much. You were busy. Yeah. We squeaked out a, a one, nothing win. And, um, and I think again, that just comes down to like, what's the mindset of the group going into that moment and, and how do you then ride a momentum wave like that? And if it's going the other way, how do you halt it? Um, those were things that we were always thinking about, but yeah, that was, I mean, that was probably, that's one of my best memories looking back on William Mary soccer when we won away at UNC. And beating wake early. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great moment as well. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Uh, you guys want to move on to after you graduate? You, uh, so you mentioned your trip to Liberia. Um, what was that all about? And um, that's obviously, you know, can move us into the next chapter, so to speak. Yeah. I think I was really lucky in my experience at William Mary in that the soccer was crucial, huge part of my experience. The academics were also huge part of my experience and set me on, on a pathway. So, um, I was a political science major and I thought I wanted to go work on Capitol Hill after school, went and did an internship on Capitol Hill the summer before my junior year and realized I didn't want to go work on Capitol Hill after that came back to William Mary and wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And I saw this course called politics in Africa and it was taught by a professor named Phil Ressler. And I just went for it. I I didn't really have any ideas. I was just like, let's give this a go. Let's try something new. And I walked into that class, um, probably with all of the archaic, stereotypical perspectives that typically exist for a young white American guy who grew up in Connecticut and doesn't know anything about the African continent. And immediately they were just upended. And um, he started telling stories and and um, in in the very first class. And his perspective and his experiences that were completely reshaping what my perspective was of this continent. And I was immediately hooked. And um, it was one of those experiences where, you know, folks who have been to university, like you're not necessarily always doing all of the reading, all of the viewing, everything that's required for every course. And in this case, I couldn't get enough of it. And I was reading everything. I was really getting stuck in. And Halfway through, we did a week on the history between the U.S. and Liberia, which is a very deep and complex history, very intertwined. And I couldn't believe that I knew nothing about this country. And so I went to uh, Professor Ressler's office hours, and I would also bring this back to like being curious and um, applying that off the soccer field. And I said to him, like, how do I know nothing about this country's history is so intertwined with ours? I want to learn more. And he kind of randomly said, why don't you start by mapping out all the foreign investment projects in Liberia? And so I did that. And it led ultimately to this research project where the next summer I went to Liberia um, through through multiple scholarships from the government department, the Charles Center. I mean, it was really an incredible experience for an undergrad to get this sort of these research dollars to go and do this work. And I went to Liberia for three months to do this um, research for an honors thesis. And I also had applied to do an internship in the U.S. Embassy. Um, the idea being I could do my research on the ground. It was very specific, but it was a randomized controlled trial that um, assessed the impact of handheld solar lights on Liberian fishermen 
we don't have to get into the details, but that's what the research was. And I was going to be, I knew I was going to be with all these fishermen on the ground uh, half the day. And I thought, well, if I can get into the embassy and see the flip side and, and get into meetings with ministers of commerce and ministers of, um, you know, foreign affairs, whatever it might be, then I would get both perspectives of this sort of like new interest area that I had. And so that's what I went to do. I, I, I went to do the internship, went to do the research. And obviously I was getting ready for my final season. And uh, I don't know that Chris was like thrilled that his, <laughs> one of his uh, returning starters was like going to Liberia for three months and with no clear plan for how he was going to train or where he was going to play and all that. But I just kind of, I just went and said, oh, I'm going to figure it out. And so I got there and was there for 12 weeks and the research and the internship were fantastic. And, um, you know, I could talk about that for days, but I also was trying to stay fit, obviously. And through this kind of crazy turn of events, um, well, I'll give you a bit of the story. So through my research, I was working really closely with a guy named Sheikh Sharif and his brother was like a semi-pro player in Liberia. And so I told him, I'm a college player. I need to try and stay fit. Do you know anywhere I can play? And he said, let me tell my brother. He connected us. His brother started picking me up every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. and bringing me to these games that were other semi-pro first division players in Liberia who were just getting together and having a kickabout and with a bunch of the community around. And so first of all, everyone was really confused. Like, who is this 20 one year old kid <laughs> who's showing up from the United States. Um, and, you know, I had to kind of just like put my head down and start playing and um, was going to those every Saturday morning. That was the only game time that I was getting and, and time with the ball. And in the third one, there was a guy on the pitch who was playing center mid. I was playing center back. And we just had this connection right off the bat. Um, in Liberia, especially at the time, there was so much individual talent, like incredible. Um, the things that people could do with the ball were just like, it was shocking to me, but there was so little coordination and organization. And as somebody, as we've talked about who liked to organize everybody on the pitch, I found it really frustrating when my center back partner was spending half the match playing striker. <laughs> and so this guy who was playing center mid really had a clear understanding of the game. And, and we didn't speak the whole game, but right at the end, he came to me and said, let me get your number. I'll call you if I have more opportunities to play. I was looking to play more. So I gave him my phone number. Um, and five days later, he calls me and says, do you want to play with George Weah's team against the Liberian national team right now? And if you don't know George Weah, he's the only African ever named the FIFA World Player of the Year. And he's currently Liberia's president. Um, and so I went and obviously I'd grown up, knew who George Weah was, was very excited to go play with him, play against the national team. And uh, it was their tune-up for their World Cup qualifier against Senegal. Liberia is a country of about 5 million people. It's um, And it's a place where when you get access to one person who has access elsewhere, you can very quickly meet folks who are um, in like upper echelons of society. So I just kind of very quickly was with all of these guys, including George Weah, and went and played in the match. And he came to me afterwards. I could run with them. You know, I was fit. And so he said, if you ever... like." we we basically need more guys you can keep coming back every week and training with my group so all of a sudden i was playing with like george Weah, christopher ray who played for arsenal james debo who played for monaco all these amazing footballers who were retired but were trying to you know keep playing and um at the time george Weah was the peace ambassador in the country 
And that was his official title. Liberia had a 14-year civil conflict that went from 1989 to 2003. And this was 2013. So it was 10 years on from the end of the civil conflict. And in his capacity as peace ambassador, he decided, let's celebrate our 10 years of peace by holding a match called the Liberian Peace and Reconciliation Match. Um, so he invited all of the greatest African players of all time, obviously he had connectivity into all of them, to come to Liberia and play in this match and celebrate their peace. So Samuel Eto, JJ Okocha, Roger Mila, Patrick Mboma, I mean, like the legends of the game. He invited Drogba, but he didn't come, unfortunately. Um, and so this is all happening. I mean, I'm talking about like week six of my time in Liberia. All this happening is very quickly. And um, yeah, he invited me to play, which I think was an act of diplomacy, I always say, more than anything, to have like the young white American on the field. I didn't belong out there with those guys from a talent perspective. <laughs> but uh, I got to play in this match in front of 35,000 people in the national stadium, president of the country there. Um, all these guys I'd grown up worshiping played for the biggest clubs in the world. And that experience showed me the transformative potential of soccer in the country, the passion and energy young people have for it. And it started my whole journey. I, I subsequently discovered a bunch around gender inequity and the underperforming education system. And while I was there, and I returned to William & Mary with all these takeaways around the massive potential of soccer as an institution in the country the underperforming education system, gender inequity. And I had ideas about what you could do with that. But I was a kid who'd been studying this stuff for less than a year. And I was really focused on my senior season as well. I was still thinking maybe I could try to play pro. So I was kind of navigating my different opportunities um, and pursuits. And again, with that kind of curiosity in mind, my professor, Phil Ressler, suggested I read as much as I could about Liberia and uh, read a book by a South African scholar named Johnny Steinberg, which is called Little Liberia, the book, and decided I wanted to study under Johnny to better understand the experience that I'd had in Liberia. And so when I was completing, we were going through our freshman, my senior season, I was applying, Johnny was uh, uh, at the African Studies Center at Oxford University, and I was applying to do a master's in African studies there to better my understanding of Liberia's history and politics, and then potentially go and do something with these takeaways that I'd had. And that was really the start of a journey where I finished at William Mary, immediately went to do a master's in African studies under Johnny. Um, when I got there, it was the height of Ebola. Liberia was one of the countries most heavily impacted. And uh, this kind of whole sequence of events happened, you know, all everything that I've just described that you couldn't have predicted. And it led to uh, me sitting across the table from Johnny and saying, well, I've got this whole network of Liberian soccer players because of this crazy set of experiences that happened. In the aftermath of Ebola, there will be an opportunity to contribute to the rebuilding process. What could we do? And that was when we said, well, what about a leadership academy that uses soccer as an incentive for kids to improve in the classroom and break down gender barriers and empower the future leaders of the country who can help solve challenges like Ebola in the future? Um, that was really like kind of the step-by-step -step sequence of events that happened. Uh, and that led to me a year later, October 2015, moving to Liberia and living there for the next five years as my home base um, and building this academy. All right. Um, incredible story, um, obviously. I mean, it's completely unique and um, just incredible. And um, so there's, there's a lot to ask about that whole sequence of events. Um, 
I don't even know where to start. Um, talk about get into the academy um, that you guys that you started, oh, and um, and if I miss, you know, if, if there's something more you want to talk about from that whole experience, please do. But um, I mean, yeah, I just yeah. it, there, there's there's <laughs> it's so it's incredible. So um, talk about you know how you came to start that, you know, how you brought everyone together, you know, you're organizing, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I'll, I'll tell you about, I'll give kind of the details of the, the Academy's trajectory and then the trajectory of the organization. And I think maybe I can also think about um, what, just to have, make sure that this applies to the previous conversation that we had, like what were the things that maybe I learned as a, as an athlete, as a college mm-hmm. soccer player that I tapped into that led to kind of, this journey that I went on. Um, so we started with 27 students, 16 boys, 11 girls in one classroom on one soccer field in central Monrovia. We had less than a hundred thousand dollars. We had like no money to do this, <laughs> but I moved to Liberia and we got started. And the way it started was, um, the kids would be with us from 8am to 6pm Monday through Friday. Um, they would have, uh, their football training in the morning because the academic class wasn't available. We were renting class space and renting a soccer field. We didn't have our own physical space in the beginning. So they would have soccer training in the morning um, and then have lunch and a life skills lesson. And then they'd come over to the academic area and we'd have uh, classes in the afternoon. And it was a, a registered school right from the beginning, run entirely by Liberians aside from me. And that was something that was really important to me was that it would be locally led because I would never understand the context in the way that librarians would. And it was really important that um, the kids were hearing from people and learning from people who look and sound like them. And we started really small and not a lot of people gave us a, a chance to keep going. There, nothing like this had ever existed in Liberia, the combination of high quality education and elite soccer training. Um, there are elite schools, there were kind of startup soccer clubs, but there was never that combination of a, a true full-scale academy. And at the end of the first year, President Sirleaf came to visit, and she's an iconic woman. She was the first democratically elected female president in African history. And um, when she came to visit, it sparked this wave of momentum. I think we had over 300 children apply the next year. We grew from 27 to 47 students. and then. Um, William and Mary ties, Jill Ellis, Al, Al Albert introduced me to Jill uh, right around that time. And Jill was like, dude, I want to come. Let's do this. So she came to Liberia along with Ashlyn Harris, the former goalkeeper of the U.S. Women's National Team in December 2016 at the start of our second year. And the momentum really grew from there. And uh, to fast forward, uh, we became residential in September 2018, we rented facilities, and then we eventually bought 10 acres of land and have built the first phase of our campus and the kids moved in there in January, 2021. And, uh, over the course of, you know, the nearly nine years that the organization has been running, we've had more than 20,000 children apply from all over the country. Um, there are currently 161 full-time student athletes. There's a 50, 50 gender equity target, um, in a country that historically referred to as the sport as a lot of people refer to it as man ball. So it's gendered by name. So it was a really big challenge to get girls into the program and, um, and give them the same opportunities that boys had, but that's something that we've been really lucky to, to pursue and succeed in. And 
yeah, today the kids live on campus. They have three meals a day. They have full-time academic classes. They have life skills lessons. They have football training every day. Um, and the whole concept is that, and we started, by the way, we started with the fourth grade. Today we have grades four through 12. So the kids who started that first year are actually graduating this year, which is a crazy concept for me. Um, but the whole concept is that we're not trying to produce professional soccer players. Um, we're trying to produce really great people who uh, will go on to lead in society as doctors, as engineers, as businesswomen, as politicians, as whatever it is that they want to pursue. And soccer has really been the hook uh, that has encouraged so many people to apply. And then when they come in, we're giving them this really high quality education so that they can identify things that they're passionate about. And at the same time, obviously, we have some kids who are really talented soccer players. So one of the girls actually, uh, Blessing Kia, she just became the first one to get a full scholarship to a university. So she's going to Connecticut College in the fall um, to play soccer and run track, which is pretty cool. So that's the Liberia story. And the other piece of it, which I'll tell really quickly, is a few years into it, a couple of philanthropists came to me. We had a quantitative impact evaluation in place with professors from William and Mary in Oxford. So Phil Ressler, who I mentioned, became the person who was actually overseeing the evaluation of the program and making sure that we were doing everything that we were trying to do to eventually produce a generation of ethical, empathetic, and entrepreneurial leaders. And the results were strong right from the beginning of the evaluation. So a couple of philanthropists came to me and said, can we take what you're doing in Liberia and do it elsewhere? And so we created a U.S.-based organization, which is called LEAD EDU, um, which would support the organization in Liberia, LEAD Monrovia Football Academy, but also seek to replicate the model in other places. And so in 2019, um, at the same time that I was running the one in Liberia, LEAD MFA, I started making several trips to Morocco, where one of our key supporters was from and who said he wanted to back it. And um, our thought process was very different context. Uh, in every way. And if the model could work there, then it could potentially work anywhere. Like the same model that works in Liberia, if we could go to Morocco, then we could bring it anywhere. And we started building and we identified these two really bright young social entrepreneurs, Moroccan social entrepreneurs who could, who could take it on. And um, so we created in 2019 Lead Morocco, which is a very similar organization to the one in Liberia. And across the two, there's a total of 282 full-time student athletes now. Um, so that's, there are three organizations. Um, today, I don't have a day-to-day -day role at any of them. I, I handed off the one in Liberia in 2021 to a really bright young Liberian woman, Sona Traore Sise, and it's run entirely by Liberians. The one in Morocco is one run entirely by Moroccans. And then uh, we've got our US-based organization. Um, and I just, I sit on the board of all three and still am very involved, but don't have that day-to-day -day role. Um, so that's kind of the, the quick version of the story of those three orgs. And I think if I just quickly tie it to things that I learned as an athlete and things that I learned in, in university at, and at William and Mary, I, I always bring it up, but that curiosity was so pivotal. Um, like even the story that I told of getting to play in the game with George Weah and then coming back to William and Mary, I could have just gotten back and said, okay, that was an amazing experience. I'm going to come back to my life here and, and carry on. But I, that curiosity remained and I just wanted to learn more. And it led to me reading that book by the professor I would eventually go study under and, and that those types of moments keep happening along the journey. So I think being really curious, I think I've talked a lot about leading by empowering. Um, and I learned that 
as an athlete. And that's something that I've really tried to practice as a professional in my career. So the stories of Sona taking over lead MFA and Fatima Zara and Sufian leading and lead Morocco and um, the team here in the US taking the lead, like those are all conscious decisions that I made in organizations that I helped start to pass on because I felt like the people around me could carry it on and do a better job and why not empower them to do that? So there's a lot of different lessons, I think, that directly apply to what you learn as a player. And you don't really know, like, you know, I was 18, 19, 20, 21. I was just a kid trying to compete and be as good as be, be the best version of myself as I could be on the field. But I was learning all of these lessons that kind of by osmosis that then would really apply in the future. Um, so it's maybe just something to reflect on for, for college soccer players or college athletes who are hearing this too, is like, what are the lessons that you're learning as you go here? How can you apply them in other parts of your life? Yeah. Um, go back to, you know, you had the idea for uh, the Academy and, you know, obviously you had to do a ton of legwork and, you know, I'm sure everyone was like, this is a great idea, but how, you know, who did you tap into? Who were some of the key players? Um, and then what, like, where did you get to the point where you're like, okay, this is going to happen and I'm not taking no for an answer Mm. kind of moment. Mm. So go back to October of 2014. This is right when I, my master's in nine months, it was very quick. So I was just, I just arrived in Oxford and I had the kind of initial concept of Ebola was raging. I was hearing all the stories from the guys with whom I'd done my research and, and um, played soccer with the previous summer in Liberia. I built these, these networks and people would say, especially at the time, people were like, why don't you do something like this in Hartford, like close to where you're from in Connecticut. And the reality was that I had these like actual friendships and relationships in Liberia that I didn't have anywhere else. And, um, so I was kind of witnessing that. And there was one particular moment that involved a particular community in Monrovia, where it felt like there was a really, really poor leadership decision that was made that led to uh, an impromptu protest and led to a 15-year-old boy being shot and killed by, um, by the military. And it just like kind of set me off into, and I'd, I'd done my research in that community. So I really understood that specific community to the extent that you could in, in a few months, but certainly wouldn't have made the decision to kind of box them in with the military there in, in quarantine fashion. So I think like witnessing all of that got my brain churning around, okay, what, what, what could we potentially do based on the relationships that we'd built? And when I say we, I think also about the guy who I eventually co-founded lead MFA with, who was the guy I had played in that pickup game who introduced me to George Weah. He turned out to be a former national team player in Liberia. And, um, and that's where the concept came of let's use soccer as an incentive mechanism. Let's use it as a hook and um, let's use that to then help improve academic performance and break down gender barriers and, and empower future leaders. And so like it was still an outlandish concept, I think, to people in my my close community. Um, but what I did was I started socializing it immediately. I was talking to I probably talked to 150 different people over the course of three, four months, like everybody I could speak to at university. Or at, in, within the master's course, uh, friends, family members, advisors, you know, my professors, 
um, I was asking them what they thought, making tweaks and and adjustments. And I think also one of the like one of the pieces of that that I didn't really mean, but then became a reality was once you've talked to so many people about it, you feel like okay, I've got to I got to live up to what I'm just what I'm talking about here. So like I've got to. I've got to act. And so I felt a bit of a sense of responsibility to push it forward. And uh, when it really became real was when we got our first bit of funding. So I think it was in February or March 2015, I was introduced to uh, the chair of Saracens, the rugby club in London. And they had a foundation that supported rugby and soccer-based initiatives around the world. And he introduced me to their head of their foundation and said, if you can convince him, we'll, we'll back you. And I made three bus trips from Oxford to London to meet with the head of the foundation. And uh, the last one at Allianz Park, their stadium, they committed to give $45,000. And at that time, as a, I was 20, I just turned 23. That was a lot of money. <laughs> so I walked out of the out of the office and I got I fist pumped. I was so excited. And then I had this sobering moment where I was like, oh, my gosh, I cannot screw this up now. You know, um, and I think that was kind of the like point of no return return. And you're giving people your word and you really want to maintain that. And uh, and then that only grows, you know, you start you get like we went in, I, I gave a talk at my high school. I came to William Mary, gave a talk. I went to DC, did an event, went to New York, did an event with friends. And we scraped together the hundred thousand dollars when I moved to, to Liberia, um, right after which I, I moved to Liberia. And, and then you have kids in your stead, you know, we had 27 students who were relying and believing in us, in our ability to build an institution. And at that point, it's not just them, it's their families. It's, it's much bigger than the initial concept that you have. So you really feel like you can't, you can't let them down and you're going to do everything possible to make it work. And um, so it's kind of like the early stage. And I think a lot of it, again, like I would bring back overcoming adversity, being resilient, um, recognizing that challenges will come to you and how do you manage them and getting back to balance in your own mind mentally. Things that I learned through sport were really relevant, especially in that first year. Yeah, because I'm sure you didn't just say, I'm going to start a school, and then all of a sudden there's a school. There was a, there's a lot more no's than yeses probably for a, for a while. Um, and I was thinking, like, how, how did you get kids to apply? Like, how did you get parents to trust you guys? Um, you know, what, what, what was that process? Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely critical that I started this with Liberians. Right. Like I would have had no idea how to start. So, um, again, different pieces of the puzzle kind of came together in a way that you couldn't have predicted. But there was a guy named Jenkins Von Gain, who was the political specialist at U.S. Embassy Monrovia. And uh, he had kind of like taken me under his wing when I was an intern, you know, a year and a half, two years before. So, of course, when I started thinking about this, I reached out to Jenkins and said, what do you think? And so as we were building, he then was the perfect person to say, Jenkins, here's what we're thinking can you introduce me to this person? Can you introduce me to that person? And he just had this Rolodex of everybody in the country. Um, so there were two artificial turf pitches in Monrovia at the time. And one of them was owned uh, by Rob Surleaf, the, the son of the president. And I had no idea how I could approach Rob to have a conversation about, could we, you know, 
put our new academy on his pitch <laughs> on a daily basis. But Jenkins introduced me to him and went to the meeting with me. And, um, you know, that started a, a relationship where Rob, we, we let, used their pitch for the first three years of the academy. So I think it was just like having, and then in terms of, you asked about recruitment, a common form of marketing and advertising in Liberia, at least at the time, was to go around in a car with a massive speaker on top of the car and a um, like a microphone and announce, make announcements. And so we did that. I was in the car making announcements. We're driving through the streets um, and we leveraged like the guys, the, the Liberians with whom I was starting this, they got their friends involved and people wanted to see this happen. So we were passing out flyers and um, Monrovia is not a, a the down, central Monrovia is not all that big. It's you can probably walk it in 25 minutes in any direction. So we literally went down every street handing out flyers and there were about 250 kids who applied in the first year, which shows you that there was a real need for this, right? That, that, that people wanted it. Um, and then, you know, you start building momentum. The president comes to visit, there's press around it. And, and that's how it just kind of slowly grew. Right. And were you able to rely back on some of those friendships you made from the match you played in? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, so again, my co-founder of the organization was the guy who introduced me to George Weah and helped along the way. We spoke to to George Weah. So at the time, he he became senator. I think it was in twenty uh, it was in twenty fifteen. Yeah, and then he was elected president in twenty seventeen. So prior to him becoming senator, we had a conversation with him, and he was very kind. Said you have my backing. And then when he became president, you know, we had. At one point, 14 of our girls came to the U.S. and played at the USA Cup. Minnesota United paid for it. It was this very random thing. And they went and they actually won the tournament, which we never in a million years would have thought would happen because they'd never played girls their age. And so when they returned, he publicly congratulated them. There was kind of a little parade for them. And it normalized the participation of girls in, in soccer and the sport and the country. And the Liberia Football Association created a U-17 women's national team for the first time. So there were a lot of different, really interesting things that led to real systemic change. And that was because, in part, we had the support of some of those folks from right at the beginning. Um, so absolutely, I think it was also like mapping. Once, it got, once we were clear on what we wanted to do and what we wanted to achieve and what types of programs we would have, in order to execute against that, we had to map out, okay, where, what types of partners do we need and where do we have access and how can we get there? and um, yeah, I, I, it, a lot of it was persistence and kind of hustle, which I think is the case in any entrepreneurial endeavor. Um, and then certainly some luck along the way as well. So you, you created a second academy in Morocco and, um, you know, what have been some of the challenges? It's a little bit different culture than very different than very Liberia, um, you know, in that gender equity is kind of where I'm thinking, um, you know, what, what were the challenges there to, to make that happen? To yeah, Morocco is such, a, it's such an interesting place. It's, I, Morocco is, I, I would recommend everybody go to both Liberia and Morocco. Morocco is a beautiful country, incredible people, amazing food. Um, and it's a really a country on the rise. And it's not just what you see. I'm not just saying that because they went to the semifinal of the World Cup in 2022. They really, it's, it's, um, it's a country that is just full of potential and is already starting to see out that potential. I mean, you go to Rabat, you feel like you're in a, a truly global major city. It's, um, it's amazing. So very different from Liberia in a lot of ways. Um, 
Yeah. And I mean, from, from a, an income perspective, a religious perspective. So Liberia is about 85% Christian, 15% Muslim. Um, Morocco is a majority Muslim country. And so there are different, different pieces that were very different. But I think what we were really good at was empowering people locally who understood those contextual differences and could apply components of the model that made sense for that context and then make adjustments where needed. And so, um, I would also bring this back to like understanding people and where people's strengths are and weaknesses are and, and speaking to those strengths. I think that's been something that's been really important for me personally when identifying folks with whom I want to work. And so Sufyan and Fatima Zara, who run, have run Lead Morocco since the beginning, with the support of there's the president, Majid Slimani, and then Imadi Zimran was the original kind of backer of this. Um, they've just been really critical in taking the model and applying it to that completely different context and understanding where to press buttons and where not to. So an example of this would be um, it, the stadium in which we operate in Morocco. We operate in rented facilities still. Hopefully soon we'll be building a campus. Uh, to that point, the Majid, who's president, would say that there had never been women sitting in the stands to watch training or watch a game. And because Fatima Zara was so smart and so talented at understanding the different dynamics locally, she and Sufyan eventually convinced the, the mothers of the kids who were at Lead Morocco to come in and see them train. And then they started coming every day. And so it just was like this kind of transformation of, um, of culture and opportunity for the kids, because then, especially for the girls who were on the pitch, that made them feel like it was, um, it was something that they were meant to do. And I think also, you know, Morocco has, has undergone serious change over a short period of time to the extent that now their women's national team also performed exceptionally in the 2023 World Cup. And, um, and that's shifted. So, yeah, I think challenges, very different types of challenges compared to in Liberia. Um, easier to, for example, raise money locally. There's more industry and, and uh, bigger corporates there. Uh, but equally like different dynamics that we've had to adapt to. And um, again, I think like if for anybody thinking about doing work internationally, probably the most important lesson that I've had is, is the lesson that you have to work with people who come from those contexts who understand them because you can bring your ideas and, and models and things that have worked in other places. But at the end of the day, you're never going to understand the place in the way that the folks with whom you're partnering do. Right. Um. So now you've you've transitioned away, not away, but you, you've, you're not running the day to day of those places. And yeah. um, so you have to now. Yeah. So uh, about two and a half years ago, off the back of doing this work, basically the, the, the kind of backstory is through the work with lead, the three different organizations, there were different there were different professional athletes who started to support our work. And they started coming to me and saying, how do you do what you did with lead? I want to do something like that in my community. And I'm not really sure how to start. And I was feeling a bit of a pull back home and a desire to do more um, locally. And so uh, I just started organically thinking about how I could potentially support these athletes. And, um, and then the pandemic, hit. so this is actually those conversations started in September 2019. Pandemic hit. And then George Floyd was murdered. And when George Floyd was murdered, one of those athletes, Elena Beard, who's a former WNBA player, she called me and was like, I want to start now. Um, 
I have the backing of the Andre Agassi Foundation. Can you help? And so I gathered a group of friends, including Sam Pressler, who's a former, uh, another William Mary alum, and Shonda Cooper is another William Mary alum. And we got together and basically incubated her foundation for her called the 318 Foundation and leveraged a lot of the lessons that we had from being in the field on the ground, doing our own nonprofit work and applied them to these folks with real platforms and voices. And um, really enjoyed that work and decided then to build a company off the back of that. So it's called Charter Oak Advisory. And it's a, it's a strategic advisory firm that essentially designs, implements, and evaluates impact programs um, for companies, for families, for high-profile individuals, um, for other nonprofits. And the idea is to drive as much social change as possible through folks with real platforms and voices. And then for businesses, also help them realize that this type of work helps to improve their core business outcomes over time. Um, so we've been working with groups like StubHub, um, Black Players for Change, which is every single black player in Major League Soccer. So still a lot of connectivity into the soccer world. Um, Gotham FC, the professional women's soccer team, just helping them leverage their core capabilities to drive change in their communities and also support their core outcomes. So that's what I'm doing today. Um, and again, still have tons of connectivity with the organizations in Liberia and Morocco and here. Uh, and I'd say, yeah, just kind of transitioning into a space where I can be home a little bit more. Uh, got married last year, so spend more time with my wife and, um, but still try to, to, create as much positive change in the world as possible cool um are there more academies to come is that part of the game plan we are figuring that out right now it's a question of funding if we have the funding it's coming um right. where our, our parameters are essentially we'll go somewhere if we have access to the financial resources to make it happen and the right relationships to make it happen because everything I've just described, especially in Liberia, the whole story I've told you, it's so reliant on having access. Um, right. But yeah, I, I'd say it's possible. It's kind of tough to duplicate the first one, huh? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, yeah. you don't have that specific set of experiences, right? So right. it's a, a little bit more starting from scratch, depending on the situation. Um, but there's, a, there's definitely some opportunities. So we'll see. Cool. Um, what did I miss? Nothing. <laughs> Norris, you got anything else? No, just uh, you know, we're we're very proud to claim Will, and uh, we don't take any credit for it. But uh, we're happy that he represents us extremely well. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. I, I think it all goes back to you know him understanding what buttons to push with josh west really i mean it's probably where it all began so. <laughs> those were hard lessons learned <laughs> all comes back to josh west yeah <laughs> cool um well i really appreciate it thank you for so much time um it's a real pleasure to have you on here and hear that story and um i mean it's inspiring and um kids need to look up to what you've done for sure. Thanks, so. Scott. Thanks for having yep. me on. I appreciate it. Yep. Hold on one sec. Thank you for listening to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com slash matchplay. 
These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast, so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on matchplayrecruit.com for our social media links. See you on the trail.